Canto 16 begins with them still walking along the high bank of this red stream as they cross the burning sands with the falling flames but say stay safe above the souls that they can see across the landscape. They hear now though tumbling water in the distance. It's signalling that they're approaching another step change in hell. Dante says that it sounds like bees sort of humming in the distance, uh, slightly ominous, um, but still apart from them. And the first thing they encounter in the first section of this canto are more of the souls who are moving across the burning sands. You remember that they'd seen a small gaggle of them throwing up dust in the distance um, that had meant that Bruno Latini departed from them and stayed with his group. Well, now that group's a bit closer, the second group's a bit closer, and three souls in particular, were told, break out and approach Dante and Virgil as they stand above them. And they look up, particularly at Dante, and notice his clothes. They notice that he's a Florentine, wearing Florentine dress, and this is what's drawing them towards Dante and Virgil. They've got to keep moving, Remember that the contrapasso here is they've got to keep moving. They're sort of all running a race that they think that they've won, but they haven't quite. Um, this sort of slightly mad motion that they're all engaged in. Um, it makes you wonder what this new group are going to reveal about their inner state. And a first indicator of this is given by the fact that they, in order to talk to Dante, which they want to do, they sort of form a strange dance where they keep moving in a kind of circular motion, spinning around, but in such a way that their heads can stay completely still so they can stare at Dante and study him. And for me, this strange dance, which Dante describes um, you know, quite precisely, is saying something about the deviousness of these characters. It's the first indicator um, of what their inner state might be like. Um, because they're able, as it were, to almost use the contrapasso to their advantage to do what they want to do. Of course, it means they do this slightly distorted, uncomfortable thing, um, strange to look at. Um, but nonetheless, they're characters that can manipulate things, can use their states, can um, use the world, you might suspect. Which is indeed the kind of thing that starts to unfold as we meet them. Now. Slightly in parenthesis, this is another canto where many commentators stick, I think, really too rigidly to the idea that this is still the circle of the Sodomites. Um, you remember that Canto 11 had indicated that at this stage, this is what we'd be encountering. But much as with Bruno Latini in the canto before, now again, Dante is really completely rewriting that, I think. That's not going too strongly. Um, once again, you know, nothing to do with sodomy is mentioned at all. Um, instead, you've got a very different kind of entrapment, um, a different kind of lust, you might say, being presented um, that Dante clearly thinks is far, far more significant for him to encounter, partly to understand something within himself, but also to present to the world um, that the world might see how this particular condition can separate you so dramatically from God. So as well as forming this sort of strange dance that they can look at Dante, 
Um, the other thing that's immediately quite striking about these new characters is that they're, they're obsessed with clothing. They've already noticed that Dante um, is a Florentine and that's why they want to address him. And now that um, sort of obsession with clothing and status and who they might be, um, their fame, perhaps what they've done, you know, rather than their fame because of their artistic works which you encountered before. And I think you can probably say um, their celebrity that has a kind of aura um, because that aura captures now Dante and Virgil, who in the first bit of the canto are completely in awe of these three souls who approach them. Uh, Virgil says, you know, we should really be getting on the sands and bowing down and honouring them, except we can't do that because the sands would burn us. Um, and Dante himself, um, in his first exchange with the souls, um, and also before, um, says that he knows that um, he'd honoured these characters in life um, and that he'd rehearsed their greatness many times and he too feels um, greatly honoured to be meeting them now. Um, and it's really strange for us um, look, readers because we know that we're in hell and we also have a description of these characters um, as they actually look um, because you know they're naked um, and it's also stressed that um, the flames that are falling from the skies and the burning sands are really damaging their bodies now they're covered in wounds and at the same time as Dante is caught up in their awe he's also grieving to his heart he says he says it will take him a long time to get over the grief that he sees because of the way that these honoured souls these noble individuals I think these celebrities that have rather wooed them with their fame, um, are suffering. Um, it's like Dante can see one thing right in front of him and yet he can't quite take it in, he can't quite see it because of um, the fame that, that clouds his view. Um, and, you know, I put it this way because I think clearly that's the sort of thing that fame can do. Um, it can so sort of shine so brightly that you don't actually see much about the state of the soul of the person within. Um, you know, maybe we can want fame so much because it's, it promises to shine so brightly that it will conceal inadequacies and other things that are within. And I think that's the kind of um, condition that we're encountering now in this canto. One of the souls speaks. Um, he's a chap called Rustacucci. Um, and we know uh, from the history books that he was a very, very wealthy merchant, and that's how he met his name, made his name. And the other two souls um, are noble Guelphs, so you know they're on Dante's side. Um, he's quite likely to um, be impressed by them. Um, in worldly terms, they had quite successful lives. Not only were they from noble families, but they did win significant victories in the civil war of Florence. But again, you know, as we're thinking about it, as we're keeping our minds about it, to win a victory in a civil war, you know, what kind of victory really is that? What kind of honour and nobility really is that? Um, they're interested in Florence still. Um, uh, Rustacucci actually tells Dante that um, another Florentine has recently joined them. He's a chap called Borsieri, um, which incidentally means purse maker. Um, and... Uh, he tells, Borsieri has told them that Florence um, is still in quite a bad state. Um, its old um, habits of courtesy and valour um, are really crumbling around. 
um, and uh, people are weeping on the streets because of the state of Florence. Um, again, in a way, Mr. Cucci is asking about Florence, so it makes you feel surely he cares. Um, but what he doesn't seem able to see is that his own involvement with Florentine politics um, is what's causing um, this disintegration um, of what had before been a truly blessed city, a truly blessed place. Um, this theme of money's come in now too, um, partly because of the purse maker, partly because of uh, what we might have read about Mr. Cucci. Um, and Dante is also wising up to things, I think, a bit um, by this point in their exchange. Um, one thing I think he's getting is that they're not actually interested in him as a person. Um, Rustacucci at one point has said, you know, who are you? Um, having noticed that this is a living soul in hell. Um, but he's not actually interested in what Dante said. He's already moved on to ask um, for himself about the state of, of Florence. Um, you know, again, this sort, of, this sort of sense that they're caught up in this celebrity mentality where they'll come up to you um, because you look like you're dressed in the appropriate way. They'll be staring at you, wondering quite who you are. And the minute they sense that perhaps you're not of use or interest to them, they're already looking over your shoulder to see who else is in the room, who else they should really be mingling with, who else can share this sort of bubble of celebrity um, so that um, together it can kind of grow all the more. Um, so Dante um, has got the sense of this now. Um, and in fact, it's at this moment um, that he turns on them, I think. Um, he's noticed um, that uh, Rustacucci has talked about Borsieri, the purse maker. And maybe that's the clue that gives him um, a way of really now bringing together what he's seeing before his eyes with the state of their, their inner souls. Because he says to them, do you know, it's actually... Florence's new money that has brought it so many troubles. Um, it says that he stands now upright with his head looking up. Um, it's thought that this is a sort of prophetic stance that he's adopting, as if he's now able to speak the truth at last. You know, maybe he's got echoes from Canto 15 um, as to what he'd learned before um, about fame in Bruno Latini's case, um, how um, fortune also, you remember, had taught Boethius that um, it's a very subtle thing um, to to love your genius um, in order that it can speak of greater things than yourself, particularly of divine things, so that you become a channel and you become uh, more than you might be um, because of, of the way that you can use your voice um, in the poet's case. Um, for that to slip to feeling that you own your genius, it's your own ability um, you, as it were, become too identified with what you're trying to sing about. And so you lose touch with that greater life and with that greater state of being. And I think that now he's seeing what's happened to these souls in front of him in Canto 16 and these rich noblemen um, who have got so entangled with the Civil War, thinking that their noble acts are worthy of veneration and praise. But actually, it's cut them off from the divine. Um, it's a civil war. Um, these are not things to be particularly proud of. And to that is also added now um, this issue of the new money coming in. I think what that means um, is that um, uh, very certain people have become very rich, very powerful in Florence. Um, but what they haven't been able to absorb as well um, is how, in a way, to use that money, the old virtues that might bring about largesse. 
um, and um, so that they would use their money for the greater good of the city um, rather than um, for causing trouble and, 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 and fermenting war. Um, and also, you know, there's this um, uh, memory of people weeping on the streets in Florence, um, not caring for the poor. Um, and so Dante sees, you might say, that it's cut them off from the life of Florence um, so it's now inevitably cutting them off from the life of God too. So that's why they're in this circle of hell. Um, and they're unable to see it. That's, the, again, the deep tragedy. Um, you know, they think that they're running a race and winning. And they think that their social status is still intact. Um, they approach Dante, not because they're interested in Dante, but to have reflected back to them um, all these delusions about themselves. Um, and in fact, as the conversations between Dante um, and the Gaggler Three now draw to a close, um, once again it finishes with Rusticucci saying, um, I know you're on your way to see the stars once more, but please remember us. Um, even though, as it were, a small part of him knows that there's more to life, um, that there's the stars to see, that there's the, there's the glory of God to be invited towards, not just their own self-glory, his soul is so addicted, you might even say, to his own fame, to his own glory, that all he can really ask Dante for, with any kind of conviction or passion, um, is um, to be remembered once more, to keep um, his name going. They run off. Um, it's said that their, their legs move like wings. Um, again, a sort of odd um, perversion of flying. They're not really flying, do they think they are? Um, they, they move off um, into this circle um, uh, of the burning sands and the flames. Um, and as they depart, um, because of course Van Virgil and Dante have been walking um, a little bit more too, um, now the falling water um, that had uh, drawn their attention at the beginning of the canto um, returns um, sort of tenfold. Um, Dante says that now the sound of the tumbling um, the crashing of the waves, the plunging into the new depths of hell um, is almost deafening. Um, and the canto moves um, into uh, quite a different mode, actually, towards the end. It becomes a lot more mysterious uh, and also ominous. Um, it's a kind of transitional preparation for us as readers um, as we get ready for what might open up to them next. Um, it's a, a bit of another stage, a bit like before the Gates of Dis, um, that's quite as frightening as it is also um, intriguing. Um, there's a bit more sense now of curiosity, a bit more sense that Dante's got his wits about him, um, even though um, fear sort of lurks um, in every molecule of this um, infernal atmosphere. Um, Dante spends some time describing how the flood that they're seeing in hell reminds him of floods um, on earth um, around various parts of Italy. Um, as it were, he's building up um, the sense um, of the waters through the verse to convey to us the sense of the waters gathering pace in front of them as well. And then um, two things in particular happen. Um, one is that um, Dante takes off the cord that had been wrapped around his clothing and gives it to Virgil. Um, he knew that Virgil was going to ask him to do this and so he did it um, uh, for Virgil. And then Virgil throws the cord in a loop over the edge of the plunging waters um, into the pit. 
Now, it's a really interesting symbol, um, inevitably much debated in the commentary. Um, I, I, I think it means two things. Um, I think, first of all, it's actually Dante's way of responding to what he's just learned um, with these um, noble Guelphs. Um, you know, they were obsessed with clothing, with look, with status. And now, in a way, Dante is taking off his cord. He's loosening his clothes. Um, he's not going to look quite so well turned out as a result. Um, I think it's a gesture which says to him he knows that he's got to put that to one side. What good's it going to do him? Um, it's a, a sort of embodied act, uh, knowing, showing that he's um, opening up to taking in something completely different now, um, and maybe even knows that that's what he's got to do. A bit like before the Gates of Dis, where they hadn't known, in fact, that they needed a, a new power um, when the angel appeared in order to break into the Gates of Dis. Um, they know now that there's more powers available to them, more divine grace, you might say, that they can access if they open up to it. And I think that this discarding of the cord um, is um, partly what Dante's showing. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if you feel that you're approaching even more danger, um, you want to wrap up, you want to keep your clothes about you. Um, even if you kind of half knew they weren't much protection, that would be a natural response. And Dante's doing completely the opposite here. Um, as they approach um, this um, jump down into deeper hell. The other side of it is a comment that he actually makes um, in the canto at this point, where he says that um, he had thought the cord could help him when he encountered the leopard who was bouncing around um, right at the beginning of the Inferno, right in Canto 1. You remember that he'd seen these three animals and one of them was the leopard that had been lump jumping around. Um, he tells us now that actually at that moment he thought that he could use his cord to try and capture the leopard and presumably he'd realised how futile that would be. Um, so this futility returns to him now. I mean, I, I, I quite like this idea that the leopard is a bit like what Buddhists call the monkey mind. Um, that it jumps around and at first you think you can sort of try and pin it down, you can will it to calm, um, you can force your attention in certain ways, um, but very quickly you learn that it has a life of its own and you're going to have to negotiate that inner reality inside you in a completely different way, um, which, you know, meditation is broadly about discovering that in fact you just sort of let it do its own thing and take a step back from it rather than try and control it then a new life a new vitality starts to show itself to you um, and so it's not that you defeat the monkey mind not that you defeat the leaping leopard but you just kind of let it be and realize that there's a bigger life that's available to you so i think this gesture um, that dante makes with the cord giving it to Virgil, um, is perhaps something to do with that as well. He knows that he's got to open himself up to a bigger life. Um, and again, it contrasts with what the souls he has just met weren't able to do. They have not been able to open themselves up to a bigger life. And there's another really interesting aspect of this exchange, because um, he doesn't just give the court to, to Virgil. Um, but also um, they have an exchange about um, how Virgil knows Dante's mind. But with this extra piece now that Dante seems to know something about Virgil's mind as well. Um, we've already encountered the phenomenon in hell, um, which is going to continue throughout the Divine Comedy, of telepathic um, capacities, how particularly Virgil knows what Dante's thinking. 
um, others are going to know what Dante's thinking too. Um, and I think this gives us a, a kind of really fascinating clue as to how telepathy might work, what is beginning to be shown here. It's not actually just sort of some magical feature of a slightly magical place. It's actually part of the reality of the place. And I think what's beginning to happen is that as Dante integrates and learns, becomes more his own person as he moves through hell, as we've been seeing, particularly in the last two or three cantos, so too he kind of tunes in a bit more to what's going on in Virgil's mind. And of course, what's going on in Virgil's mind um, is a kind of wisdom about how to navigate this place. Um, so this telepathy is actually sharing in the kind of knowledge or awareness of the place um, and what has got to happen, what's got to unfold. Um, so hence, Dante gives Virgil the chord that even though he doesn't know quite what it's going to do, and we don't know quite what it's going to do, um, nonetheless, he's able to receive um, the, um, the wisdom of the place, um, which is also to, to read Virgil's mind, as it were, to share um, in that communication with Virgil. And so they start to know um, what each other's thinking. Um, you might say that Dante is gaining a sense not only that he has an external guide in Virgil, but his own inner guide is waking up to him. Um, and that is something that he's gaining from the descent. Um, you know, the horrors of the descent um, are finally having some sort of good effect. Um, they're still descending, but he's gaining what he's going to need to, to have to make the ascent. Um, because he's learning that he's got to let go of his own power, his own self-control, um, in order to continue. What is going to happen when the cord gets thrown over the edge of the precipice um, into the deepest recesses of hell um, is also set up for us in anticipation now in the final part of the canto. Um, we don't know before the end of this canto quite what is going to happen next, but Dante says to us, um, in the voice of Virgil, that we're going to see something that is really very strange now. So strange that you are going to read it, dear reader, and not believe that what you are reading really could have happened, really could have taken place. Um, but to stress the truth of what is being shown to us, Dante, the poet, addresses us as readers and makes a very dramatic gesture. He swears on the comedy itself, you know, his, his, not only his greatest life's work, but his greatest life's revelation. Nothing could be more important. And Dante swears on that, that what he's going to describe um, is the truth. It's going to seem like a lie, he says. But, you know, I think this is what genuine spiritual transformation is like. When you get told about it ahead of time, you think that can't possibly be true. Um, you've got no awaken capacity to appreciate that it might be true because it's precisely that awakening that's got to take place in order for you to be able to see um, what um, spiritual reality can show you all that is there for you to see that you're being invited into and you're being called to participate in um, but you've got to go through the struggle to sort of let go and to open up and so Dante swears on the comedy itself that though it's going to seem like a lie it is in fact the truth um, and it's not going to be immediately evident what truth is being shown to you of course 
um, but he's inviting us to stay with him, to go um, with um, their continued descent. Um, again, Dante in quite a different mood now, even though they're about to see things which um, step up the terror and fear again. And the canto leaves us with that sort of hanging like um, a cliff edge as they're on the edge um, of this infernal waterfall, because he says that what appeared before them crawled through thin air, um, you know, preternaturally, um, in a way that uh, he had never seen before, um, that was beyond his wildest imagining. And yet this thing that's now appearing before them is going to take them into the next stage of the descent and plunge them right to the heart of the place that is the most distant from God.